Hi there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Cloud-Based Mayhem. My guest today is the legendary Robbie Whittle. I have been dying to get Robbie on the show for years and years, and it finally came together really as a result of the Kiwi tragedy. Those two were uh, very, very dear friends and had many, many adventures together over the years and a lot of history together with Ozone. And unfortunately, I didn't get to meet Robbie on it. I was there uh, for the first few days of the search, and then he came in afterwards, and then, of course, came back uh, when they found Kiwi, and I didn't get to meet him then either. But we did get to share a lot of texts and um, some laughs and some tears, and finally got together to do this show. So really excited to bring you this. Robbie is, of course, one of only three people to have won the world championships in hang gliding and paragliding, along with Judy Levin and his mate John Pendry, uh, all British pilots. So we talk about why the Brits have been so dominant in this game from the beginning. We talk about his crazy racing uh, for a few years in the Isle of Man race, widely known as one of the most dangerous motorsports races in the world. It's held every year. It's been held almost 100 or maybe over that now. And and just in 2016 alone, they lost five people in that race. So it's crazy. You got to Google it. There's some links up in the show notes uh, and with some of that racing, pretty wild stuff. We talk about him starting, one, being one of the founders of Ozone and all kinds of stories and his dominance and why he got out of the sport really at the top of his game, what he's doing now, what he'll be what he plans to do in the future and this was an emotional one for both of us talking about kiwi of course talk about that a little bit and but just great it was just so awesome i'm so thankful and grateful to have robbie on the show and share his some of his incredible history before we get to the show the top of the show tips are actually two stories that i came back to we recorded this podcast a couple months ago and I just recently had a fun flight out in the desert with Bill Belcourt and, and Revis and Thad. And Bill shared some of the stories, some other stories that I hadn't heard in the podcast uh, with, about Robbie. And I went back to him and said, hey, can we, can we slide some of those into the top of the show? So please enjoy these two rather wild stories about Robbie to kick things off. And then we'll get into the podcast. Okay. Oh well, it, it's uh, it, it's funny that these stories get remembered and that Bill has remembered that one. Uh, obviously, when it's your own life, uh, a lot of things get forgotten, and I'd totally forgotten about this. But it was quite an incredible story. Uh, it's uh, happened once upon a time, a long time ago, when I was a much younger man. Uh, but we just started Ozone, and what had happened was we were going virtually every weekend to Italy because at that time I was kind of a bit of a bit of a hero in Italy, and we needed to kickstart the business quick. And the easiest country because we were living in France and developing the gliders in France was to go to Italy every weekend and do a demo weekend. So we were literally every weekend. Work during the week, nip to Italy on the weekends, do our demos at various sites around the country and drive back again. Anyway, this particular weekend, uh, we were having a, de a demo meeting in Como. 
at uh, with a with our distributors there, Eric Onizolo, and we, you know we were a young company, so we we needed to make things happen. Unfortunately, it was um, north wind, very strong fern wind, so it, there was no way to fly. And when I say it was very strong, it was howling, absolutely howling over the back of the hill. Uh, you know, fifty. 100 kilometer winds up high. Um, so there was not much we could do, but we had all these people there who'd come to see us. And, um, you know, the draw card for that weekend was myself and John Pendry. And so everybody wanted to see the products. And um, we're like, well, what are we going to do? And I said, well, I've got an idea. Let's go down to the landing field. For sure, it's going to be an absolute mess down there, but I can just quickly get the wings up and let at least let people see them. You know, just quick, boom, up, have a look, drop it down again, pack them away. So uh, we just released uh, the tandem wing at the time, which was the Cosmic Rider. So, I mean, the tandem wing was 34 meters. I don't know what I was thinking, but uh, I was particularly lucky on this one. So I got the, the tandem out, put it up, let everybody see it, dropped it down, packed it away. It was like, my God, that was lucky. You know, I didn't get dragged into a fence or something. Uh, then we had the octane and actually happened to have the extra small octane with us. And I thought, oh, well, that's perfect because it's actually, you know, even though it's so strong and windy, it's the size you'd want to be handling in these kind of winds. So, you know, the, there's a crowd of our dealers there all watching and I put the, the octane up and uh, John is actually just stood in front of me at this time. I've clipped into the wing backwards because I'm just doing a demo on a flat field, you know, in the landing field. So uh, I've clipped into the wing backwards, uh, literally just going to pop it up, show them the new octane and drop it down. Anyway, I pop the wing up and it comes up beautifully. And, you know, the wind's a bit all over the place and you can tell it's turbulent and we're in the lee, lee side of the hill, of the, you know, of the Alps, basically, because this is... Uh, um, Como is basically the the, the pre-Alps. It, you've just got the flatlands and then the first hills go up. Um, so we're literally right in the rotor of the whole Alps. And uh, so I pop the wing up anyway, and she comes up good, looking good. John stood in front of me. I'm clipped in backwards, remember? So uh, it, it's... For me, it's no problem. I used to do that a lot when I was just trimming wings. You just It's easier to look at the wing without the harness trying to untwist you uh, if you've got crossed risers. So um, I pop it up. It's looking good. John happens to be stood in front of me, and I just get this sort of weird gust that lifts me off a meter. And mine and John's eyes meet. John Pendry, this is. Our eyes meet. And at that particular moment, we're both smiling because – it's just as if I've been, you know, lifted off the ground a little bit. And it's obvious I'm going to come back down any second. <laughs> anyway, I don't come back down. I get a sort of second boost that takes me to about three meters high, maybe four meters high. And now I'm looking at John and John's face has changed. Mine's still smiling, but John's has now changed to a, a sort of a face of uh, disbelief and kind of like, oh, this looks like it could turn into something. Anyway, then I get another boost, and before I know it, you know, I'm sort of 15 meters high uh, with now the wing 
starting to collapse each side and each tip is collapsing and I'm just getting buffeted around because obviously I'm in the rotor. John's face is now horrific. Mine has obviously changed from, oh yeah, this is all good. I'm in control to, holy shit, what's going on here? Anyway, the whole crowd, the whole crowd has sort of dispersed slightly and is just looking up at me and with these tips going. Anyway, you can imagine, uh, very strong winds in this rotor. I literally just get um, puppeteered around the entire landing field, getting taken up a bit higher, sometimes maybe, uh, you know, um, 20 meters, 25 meters, then down again to 15 meters, back up to 30 meters, down again. And the whole time this is happening, I'm clipped in backwards, okay? <laughs> I've, got, I've got tips collapsing on me. And I'm trying to work out what into wind is because hopefully sooner or later I'm going to come down. Anyway, so I do this tour of the landing field with the tips collapsing, and I'm, you know, this is a totally uh, the I, I was totally out of control of where I was going, but I was at least in control of the wing. And uh, so I'm just trying to keep the thing inflated. I'm not looking at the ground anymore. It's just like whoa, holy crap what the hell's going on I'm just getting rocked from side to side it's totally intense anyway suddenly i sort of find myself out of that bit of turbulent air that had picked me up and had sent me around the landing field i'm just oh my god right i've got to get this thing down so i'm come i'm flying forwards but i'm clipped in backwards so i've got to look over my shoulder to work out you know how to fly this thing back to the landing field anyway it just turns out that by total coincidence, my glide path and everything leads me back to where the crowd of people are who are all just literally mouths gaping and look of fear in their faces. As I come down, land right next to them, flare perfectly, and I'm clipped in backwards still. Well, at this moment, you know, the entire place just erupted into clapping and cheers and and mass, um, what, what would you describe that? Just sort of jubilation. Damn. Yeah, well, jubilation that I wasn't smashed up or dead or, you know, broken somewhere on the other side of the field, getting, you know. And um, that was that, you know, even I was <laughs> rather satisfied that I brought this one home. Um, but it was amazing. And it, it took me to another level of, stardom in italy because this story went around uh pretty quickly and you know no one could believe that you could get you could actually take off on a flat field that you could get slammed around and hammered and still come down and do this perfect landing clipped in backwards right next to everybody <laughs> so this was uh yes it was definitely one of my lucky moments that's for sure oh my god that's crazy <laughs> It was, it was totally crazy. And the good thing is, and I, th this is one thing I do always uh, uh, like to, you know, when, when I tell a story, it is 100% truthful. I'm not, I'm not trying to extrapolate it to sound bigger or better. That is exactly what happened. There was probably 50 witnesses. John Penry, John Penry was right there. We've actually got it. We've got photographic evidence because there was a photographer there and he was taking photos of this whole thing happening. And you can see this, this uh, you know, um, sequence of this flight with my tips closed and, you know, clipped in backwards and 
the whole thing. Did you have any kind of, did you have any kind of protection or a reserve or anything? Or were you just in a little bikini harness? No, I was in a bikini harness, no protection, no reserve, no nothing. Just, you know. Good God. Just oh, the, my God. Just doing, just doing the old seat of the pants thing. But it, it came good, you know. And I, I went down as a bit of a hero. <laughs> That's insane. You know, the only, I, I can't, I don't have any, anything like that. But I, I think that until you really experience phone like that, it's the, the one time I, I really, really got myself in a pickle was uh, from Bellinzona. I was doing a big triangle mm-hmm. and it was a pretty strong North phone day, but there was a couple other Swiss guys that felt pretty comfortable about it. You're kind of protected there. And, yeah. and so we, we do the out leg and we do the, the, the top of the triangle and that's up by the Arolo pass. And, and it had just been 4,000 meter base. Like it was just incredible. No wind. It was amazing. And, and I'm just on the, on the leg back. It's just going to be a nice big triangle and I'm super excited. And, uh, and there hasn't been a twitch of bad air. And, uh, and, and I'm just cruising along on the south side of what I call the big sea. It's like at the top of the Lago Maggiore, there's that big uh, valley that goes from Bellinzona up around. And then there's the Arolo and then there's the Newfoundland, you know, that go into the Rhone. And the Arolo ties into the Rhine. And as soon as I get about halfway across, and I was, I'm on the south side, so the Ar- I'm looking up at the Arolo Pass and I'm just cruising by it. And all of a sudden, I'm in it. Just this, it, like the dam broke. And I was high. It was 4,000 meters. And it was a 4,000 meter SIV to the ground. And I, I mean, I landed in 60 kilometer an hour winds backwards, of course. And, and, uh, and it was just, it went from so nice <laughs> to my God, there's the bottom of my wing again. Wait, there it is at the top. You know, it was just, it was like I was doing the infinite and I don't know how to do the infinite <laughs> just all the way to the ground. It was like, Jesus. And, uh, yeah. So you, I, I don't think people understand what, phone is like until you're in it like that you must have just been like you said a, a, a marionette just no, getting I played was, by the i was just oh my know, I was, god i was the puppet on the end of the strings just oh my god you know i was i was in control of like i say only the wing to keep it open where we were going and what yeah. was thing was nothing to do with it yeah you you had nothing to do with that yeah, ah, terrific. just a passenger along for the ride but yeah the, the old the old fern thing is something that um the fern wind, this is when it's, it's basically normally something to do with a high pressure and low pressure situation between the North Alps and the South Alps. And so you've got Italy on the south and then you've got Germany on the north. And one of those will be in high pressure and the other will be in low pressure. And basically, normally what's happening is you've got this air mass that is being trying to be equalized. And so you get these very strong north winds. And uh, my funniest story for the for the fern is... We were flying at the World Championships in Fiche, 1989, hang gliders, last day of the event. I was in the lead. All I had to do was bring it home, and it was happy days. Uh, we take off on the first glide. It's forecast north wind. It's very, uh, We're in Switzerland uh, in the uh, Rhone Valley, a place called Fiche. And we take off on the last, uh, last task, all climb up together. It's pretty gnarly. It's already a bit bumpy. We go off on the first glide. All the top competitors are together. Like I say, I'm in the lead. All i got to do is bring it home um, and uh, head off on this first glide. Everyone together, massive squadron, and I'm just flying along and in the middle of it for some reason. I don't know what happens, but uh, my wing just turns upside down on a hang glider, so I just tumble 
the wing in front of everybody. And literally the bar goes past my face once. I, I let go of the bar because I'm not a guy that hangs on tight to the, you've got to let the thing fly. So you don't want to be hanging on. You're just, you're just controlling fingertips. The bar gets ripped out of my hand. I do some tumbles. Uh, this is in front of the whole, you know, lead gaggle. Uh, I do a couple of tumbles. Somehow the glider doesn't break. The bar goes in front of my face. I grab it, radio hanging off, bits and pieces hanging off everywhere, Vario broken. Anyway, I'm just like, oh, my God. And people are on the radios going, oh, my God, Rob's just tumbled, you know, blah, blah, blah. But I'm still flying. So I stick the radio back and pull everything together and get everything going. Um I flew 160 kilometers that day. There were only three people at goal, and I was the second person at goal. <laughs> ah, no way! What? Yeah. And I won the world. Has that ever happened? Three. You tumbled twice, and you won. Oh my god! Yes. Yeah. No, I, I don't think that's happened. Many. I, I believe I might have been the luckiest person alive. <laughs> and again, and, and again, I, I would just like to say that. Uh, you know, that, that is not a story that's been embellished to sound better than it is. There's a, there was a, a mass of pilots that saw this happen. And when I landed at the goal um, on this particular day, it was a super gnarly day. The rest of the flight was horrific. For, for the first hour and a half after this had happened, I was shitting myself the whole time. But I knew I had to just get a move on. And I'd lost everybody because when I'd done this tumble, I got low, stuck in a gully and had to spend sort of 20, 30 minutes getting back out of this gully. By the time I got out of there, I couldn't see anybody or or everybody, anybody anymore. So I just, you know, got the bit between my teeth and went off on this crazy route on my own. Flew around the whole course expecting to come in last and found out I was second. <laughs> that is so awesome. Oh, my God. You tumbled twice and kept going. That's yeah. The- <laughs> yeah. On a hangout. Yeah, so then when I landed in the landing field, um, you know, most everybody was sort of totally jubilant, and I was I was more just relieved because it was, you know, can you imagine the stress you're under anyway on the last day, and then this shit, oh. and anyway, so that all happens, and I, I'm look, I'm packing the glider up, I've got. The, the battens on one side are all bent. The anti-dive rods are broken on one side. Um, cross tube bent, keel bent. And I flew one of the gnarliest days that has ever been in competition on a glider that was completely knackered and made, made, made goal. I was, oh, yeah. That, <laughs> that was... Uh, God, that what, a, what a story great. about hanging in there. <laughs> yeah, that, that was definitely when I was young and impetuous, and it was I needed to get to to take that one home. That's for sure. <laughs> did you did you see Robbie? Did you see the uh, the footage of Rick Brazina, who I competed with? I think in the twenty seventeen race, I think, but Canadian pilot who was uh, he got he got lifted off the ground in a dust devil in Manila, and it, it was immediately in a, in a sat configuration. And he sat it up about a thousand feet, just, I mean, just totally out of control. I mean, he wasn't even planning on launching yet. You know, it was just this thing just boosted him. Like you get, you, you get at Chelan all the time, you know, you've yeah. seen that in Chelan. Yeah. And, and then he went and flew like 180 K. <laughs> he, no, he got up and he was like, well, I guess everything's okay. <laughs> it wasn't a competition. That was not nearly as cool as your story, but the footage is 
crazy. Oh my god, no, I'm so gonna, scary. I'm gonna have to look for it. Rick Rosina did this. Google it. Rick Rick Brazina Dust Devil. Just Brazina. Google it. It's freaking terrifying. It's oh my god. Um that's unbelievable. I, I've never heard of anybody tumbling and not throwing, and let alone winning. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> these Holy are, shit. These are those things that accidentally somehow um, uh, sort of skyrocket you towards uh, notoriety or uh, of some yeah. notoriety. Oh, yeah. That's, that's one of those. Did you hear the story about Robbie? Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so hope you enjoyed that little taste of things to come. Now, please enjoy the rest of the podcast with Robbie Whittle. Robbie, this is pretty exciting for me. Uh, I have heard all the amazing stories about your past and your your world championship wins and hang gliding and paragliding. I don't think it's too much to... I'm sorry, this is, this will make you blush a little bit, but you are truly a legend in our sport. And it's just a real treat for me to be able to see you here on the screen and, and have a have a talk with you. Let's just uh, dive in with with where you are and, and what you're doing. It looks, looks awfully nice out through that window there. Yeah. Yes, it is. Uh, first of all, Gavin, thanks for asking me to be on the show. Um, probably should have done something sooner, but here we are now. So it's obviously the right time. Uh, I'm currently in Raglan, New Zealand, uh, West Coast, small small town, surf town, and um, I'm here fundamentally because uh, wind and waves, good for my work, which is still developing kite surfing and still doing speed wins as well. Yeah, I was going to just, let's start there. Um, you know, I don't often think of, you know, my background is a bit in kite surfing as well, but never from the designer side. I don't have that kind of mind. I know you've been designing wings, which are kite surfing or wings as well for decades now, but speed wings and kite surfing seem odd. That's a, are, do you find they really tie together? Um, tie together. I'm not sure they tie together, but it's definitely what I do. Um, Hmm. When, I, when I moved out of the uh, paragliding development and into the kite surfing or the kiting development, um, uh, I was doing the speed wings at the time and I just carried the speed wing thing on because it, it's a little bit more dynamic. And to tell the truth, the, the guys were busy trying to fulfill their requirements just to, to uh, keep the paragliding um, uh, line up up to date so i just carried on doing speed wings and as it happens they work very well together with, you know uh, when it's too windy or you know when it's nice and strong for kiting i can have a good session down here then nip up the hill which is um, a two-minute drive and go soaring on the coast which is also good for testing because i've got a lemon and a nice smooth airflow yeah make makes it semi semi safe in the beginning yeah that i mean that's interesting they uh I mean, your design background, was this something you, you studied or you just learned back? I believe, well, you know, was your first designing job with Adele? Do I have that right? Is it, is it like kind of early 90s? Was that something you studied in school or you just kind of learned the trade? Uh, no, I learned the trade basically um, since I started my hang gliding career very quickly. I was picked up by uh a company in, back in the day called Airwave, and I just became a sort of test pilot and 
um, a little bit of a problem solver because, uh, I, well, yeah, in all honesty, I, I have, or not, I think I still have quite a good feeling and a, a very analytical mind when it comes to feeling. But um, the rest of my whole development of my um, designing career has just come about through, um, uh, certainly not through education in the normal terms, it's just been sitting on designer's shoulders and watching how they use the programs. And then slowly I just worked my way into a position where um, we got rid of the link in between, which is uh, normally the designer. So it, to me, it would appear to be a good thing to have a designer stroke test rider who is actually feeling the sensations and able to self-evaluate these the nuances of uh, what makes a good wing or a good kite. And, um, so I, I've literally just sort of grown into the job and found myself in a great position. Really, I, I totally enjoy it. But I, I do not consider myself um, anything other than an artist. Uh, I'm not a, mathemat a mathematical mind. I'm a, a feeling and sensation and visual kind of person. So, Robbie, take us back. What was the catalyst? How old were you? When did you take your first flight? How did it all happen? Uh, well, I was very lucky. My father was into hang gliding from the very beginning. Um, and so I grew up on the hills watching, occasionally getting a, a piggyback ride. And this was from the age of sort of four onwards. Um, piggyback tandems back in 1975 where they just sling a little harness on my dad's back and you know back in those days you were just flying top to bottoms but uh, uh yeah it it got me back then and then we watched for lots of years because every weekend my dad would be going out flying and we'd jump in the car me and my brother and mess around on the hill with kites and some radio models and basically we just we grew up around flying uh, but my father was also a motorcyclist, and uh, I can safely say that I was more interested in motorcycles than I really was the flying part. And, uh, you know, I used to sit on my dad's bike in the garage and pretend like lots of kids do. <laughs> and um, when it came to being uh, 16, that was when I could have a motorcycle. And, you know, I was banging on the door of wanting a motorcycle like crazy. And my father said, look, uh, if you don't get a motorcycle, and um, you get into, you know, basically I'll buy you lessons from a, a hang glider so that you can get into this avenue because he knew that um, I was a little bit reckless when I was young and I was very involved in BMX riding. And he knew from the way I could crash a BMX that I could probably crash a motorcycle even bigger. <laughs> so he got me into flying and I had my first lesson with a, a friend of ours. and. Uh, you know, it was just beaming from ear to ear. And I knew straight away, oh, my God, you know, I, I found I found my thing. This is this is what I want. And so from then on, it was um, just step-by-step -step progress. My father's a firm believer in um, uh, steady progress where you learn each stage rather than just jumping to where, to, where you would like to be. It's to mature through the through the learning process and um, get each level absolutely sorted before you move on to the next level. And um, it all just kind of worked out 
fantastically. And, you know, as my soaring capabilities increased, my desire increased, and then you can keep me out of the air. It was, uh, yeah, it was a, a full mainline addiction. <laughs> did you, did you see it then as a potential way of life or as a way to get paid, make a living, or is it just, it's just such a blast you had to do it. I mean, was there a, was there a progression in terms of, were you seeing it as a progression? Of, okay, I, I can make a job out of this. No, absolutely not at all. This was, uh, and, uh, my life is like this anyway. I'm purely passion led person. And, um, I, I had a very hard time at school and sort of left feeling very unsuccessful because, uh, obviously it's a success based, system that we have and uh, I wasn't very successful um, and then you know I started hang gliding and that just all evaporated and the joy and the passion that was put into my hang gliding was was life you know that's that that's what um, made me wake up every day that's what drove me it was just god this is so fantastic and you know when i was at school i can remember sitting in classrooms watching the seagulls soaring the building it was a four-story building and i just watched the seagulls soaring the building and i would dream to be one because here i am trapped in the schoolroom not understanding not even understanding what they're trying to teach me and i'm just looking out of the window at these birds going oh my god what an amazing life they have there they're not answering to anybody. They're not responsible for anything. They're just flying. And when they've had enough of flying in one place, they just fly off to another place. And uh, that's pretty much how my life has been, really. You know, I, uh, that that's what has has made me. You know, is there any kind of a you know back then? I mean, certainly when I was, we're not too different in age, I don't think. And but back back then, you know, I never heard of. ADD or ADHD, nobody talked about that. But do you, do you looking back, was there any kind of dyslexia or ADD or any kind of thing like that that you felt was maybe a? Because I, I've I've often we come across that a lot with pilots. There's there seems to be, you know, there's a lot of engineers that do it, but there's um, a lot of folks that get into flight that seem to <laughs> watch the goals and can't keep their eye on the board yes uh i I'm, I'm very averse to the labeling of anything um because yeah. uh that that would give us the understanding that there's some form of normality there is no form of normality there there's a form of being uh, pushed through square holes when you're around but it doesn't make you normal and so yes <laughs> i did have um uh, sort of, I, I would call it acute dyslexia. I couldn't really read very well, and I can't. Sp I still can't read and write very well. Um, and also, I guess having a, I, I'm, I've, I've been diagnosed with this, which is again something that's probably not a good thing to be diagnosed with because it gives me an excuse. But I, I do know this is a, a reality. I have an incredibly bad short-term memory and an even worse long-term memory. But the beauty of that is it makes me live in the now because I'm not, in, mm. I'm not interested in the past. I can't remember most of the things that have really happened because I, I can only do now. 
And I do look forward a bit, but my forward planning is probably a couple of days. And people ask me, oh, when are you going there? When are you doing this? And I, oh, I don't know, March sometime. I never put a date on things until I need to put the date on it just before it because what is only here and now. So it's better to be present. And um, that, I think that's also what happened happened why I was particularly good at flying is because it is a form of meditation and the more connected you are to that moment because you know you're, you're flying in a fluid a natural fluid and the best way to be connected to it is to be present and you know one of the things that happened in paragliding that turned me off was the advent of all the electronics because it took away from my skills which were to be able to understand and connect and read the sky and the conditions and the wind naturally. And so once all the GPSs came in, instead of there being five guys in the lead group who were all exceptionally feeling um, natural pilots, suddenly there was 15 people in the lead group and 10 of them were reading computers and five of us were flying by the seat of our pants. And unfortunately, the guys with the computers uh, started to beat us because they were getting information that, or gathering information that you could say was broader reaching than ours. So, you know, we, we'd be trying to finesse a final glide from where we, where we dared to do it. But now you've got an instrument telling you you can do it. Yeah. So there's an alarm that so, goes off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and that, uh, that for me was the end of my flying career because, uh, I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in the pure heartfelt connection to the environment. That that's that's what I was. Oh, that's what I was living through. You just answered a question that was way down my list. Oh, sorry. That, that's why you got out of flying? No, no, no. It's fascinating. I mean, in some ways, your brain is is like a uh, is a is kind of a lottery ticket. I mean, to 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 live in the now and to be present is, I mean, people have to go into caves and meditate for 20 years to do that. And it sounds like that's just a natural inclination. Inclination Was that something you worked on or is that just how you've been? Um, no, it's definitely just something how I've been, but I didn't recognize what it was for a long time. Um, hmm. How do you say? Uh, I, I believe, and again, you know, this is, this is only my point of view and uh, nobody has to agree with it. But um, I believe one of our biggest problems is that we've separated ourselves from true connection uh, to the natural powers of the universe. Um, and that this is why we're in the, uh, you know, don't get me wrong. The world is beautiful. Uh, what happens is just part of the human development process, regardless of whether we go fully electronic or whether we go fully naturally. It doesn't matter in the end, but uh, I think we would have a much more harmonious world if they were teaching. I'll use the word spirituality, but I don't really like it. I prefer to call it connectivity because um, as soon as you put the word spirituality out there, people are like, oh yeah, very, very rubbish. But um, it, it's not um, this connectivity to the natural world is something that we take for granted. And when you take things for granted, obviously you forget to respect them. And that is the respect that is required for us to be able to nurture ourselves properly and the environment around us. And I am, I am also guilty of exploiting 
for my living and for the companies that I work for, of course, the uh, the natural environment. So, um, you know, I, I do have an, my own mental battle to be able to balance these two things, but uh, I'm also fully aware that we're not nurturing enough connectivity. Yeah, amen. Let's get back to your learning, you know, that you, as I understand it, you know, your, your two hang gliding world championships, and then pretty quickly after that, paragliding world championships. I know we'd all love to understand better how, you know, there, there are exceptional athletes, you know, Kelly Slater and, and others. And, you know, it's always some component of that's really hard work, but I, it sounds like, um, you really truly had a talent and a gift. What, what, can you identify that? It, what, where did it, where did it come from? How did it, did, did it start with your dad and his approach? That's, it's quite funny that your, that your father tried to save your life by getting you into free flight. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it, it is very ironic. And there are people that, you know, raise their eyebrows at that one. But, uh, you know, it, first thing is my father is, um, a very good role model in terms of many of the things that he's taught us. Um, uh, and fundamentally, it's always been around respect, you know, respect what you're doing, because especially with flying, you know, gravity hold, uh, takes no prisoners. So you, mm. you need to be uh, on top of that game. But um, honestly, Gavin, if I look at these things now, retrospectively, I think what it was more than anything was that uh, I was lit purely by true passion. And somebody who is lit by passion is virtually unstoppable because when that passion is absolutely the burning desire within your heart and in your head, um, the noise stops. You are connected. And literally, you know, I can remember competitions where I could I could be flying with ten other guys, and I I would just have the feeling that I need to be over there, and the ten other guys would sail off that way, and I'd go off at right angles, and they'd all be thinking, oh yeah, yeah. where's he going? He's gonna he's gonna blow it. Lo and behold, they'd all sink out. I'd climb out and be at goal. It was just <laughs> allowing the free flow and being in those moments and lit by passion, as I say drags you to the right place to be. Um, I, I never entered a competition. In fact, one of the reasons my career was a little bit up and down was um, while you're lit through passion, everything comes to you very easily. But the minute you start trying, uh, everything disappears. And the problem with winning anything is that you try and maintain that. And then you take away the passion and now it's a maintenance thing instead of a passionate thing and it becomes very hard to be as successful because you're not as connected because now you're worried about the result it sounds like it sounds like when you were allowing yourself to kind of go into flow state and fly intuitively you would, would do really well and then when you would try to do really well you would screw it up is that basically it? You'd cut, you'd let your conscious brain take over and win to try to win. And then you, then you, then you'd bomb. Yeah. I'm afraid that's about it. Uh, and I, I see it today, you know, 
uh, in, in virtually every sport. It, it's really interesting once you are at least uh, my perception of these things is you see absolute fantastic talent coming and they go all the way to the top and then they disappear again. And they disappear because they started trying. They stopped flowing. They started wanting instead of accepting. And when you want something, the chances are you're going to have to work to get it. And if you just let these things happen, then the fruits come come to you naturally. And, uh, you know, I watch you in motorcycle race and you see such great talent coming up. You're like, oh, yeah, fantastic. And they make it to the top and then they start taking it too seriously. The fun is taken out of it. The joy is taken out of it. And then your passion is automatically dwindled because of that, because now it's not about you expressing yourself. Now it's about the result of your expression. And lo and behold, um, many people, you know, drift by the wayside. I've been working with Thomas Therlo a bit this time around before this X-Alps. You know, he was Kriegel's coach and supporter for the first four and then they're doing it again together this year which is which is really exciting and mm-hmm. scary <laughs> and but he talks about that that you know you can't you can't think about placing that's a stupid goal it's you have to think about process you can think a little bit about performance but everybody's going to be within one or two percent you know both on the ground and in the air but so process goals are important you know packing your bag fast and that kind of thing but he said that there's there's very often in the race where he has to not, I don't know if he has to, I think Kriegel's gotten pretty good at this himself, but you know, Hey man, do some wingovers. Don't be so serious, you know, relax. What would you normally do right now if you weren't in the race? Yes. And let's just take you out of the race for a little while and, you know, just have fun. You know, in other words, remind, reminds that, you know, this should be a game. Exactly. We, you know, we're human beings. Uh, we're taught to take, we are taught, indoctrinated to take everything too seriously. We need an answer for everything. We, you know, it's just, no, 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 no. Turn it all back, plug into the flow state, let it happen. I guarantee you success. But while you try too hard, I can guarantee you probably more failure than success. Robbie, I was talking to Bill Belcourt, your good friend, yesterday to get some ideas and stuff to talk to you. And he he had some really funny stories about he said, Well, when Robbie would come to a comp, you know, usually you'd go to a comp, like say say it's in the Rocky Mountains, you're 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 pretty you're thinking pretty hard about conditions. Is it gonna overdevelop? Is it gonna get too windy? Am I gonna get my ass kicked today? You know, because it's it's always big, right? And he said, But when Robbie would show up, you were actually more stressed out about the days where you weren't flying because you had to go hang with Robbie. Like he said, you know, that you're one of, one of the things you used to say was, you know, half of the comp is one on the ground. And I was like, what, what does that mean? He said, well, yeah, because you would have to go four by or race motorcycles or do something and party like crazy and then show up the next day, you know, and it was just kind of expected. So was that... <laughs> Was that really part of your game plan? Is that how you how you also kind of won, or was that just who you were? And you you just you just it sounds like you kind of lived full throttle or live full throttle. I, we're we're going to get into the Isle Man stuff, so obviously you haven't backed off too much. But. Well, yes, uh, I, I like it's very nice that Bill remembers me like that, and uh, yes, it, it probably was the case, and I definitely do maintain that competitions can be won on the ground just by your uh, <laughs> presence and your ultimately, and I know this uh, 
is adverse to what I said earlier, but ultimately your lack of respect for virtually everything. Because uh, also when you're in flow state, you don't need to worry too much about anything else. Just go with the flow and it'll all be good. Um, but also at the same time, I was a test pilot and I'd spent so many years falling out of the sky as for a living. And I'm, I'm talking about especially, you know, when I was working in Germany with Firebird, I was just falling out of the sky every day, every day, every day, a different wing, different tests, uh, different conditions. And it, it gives you a certain ability to cope with the rough stuff and, for sure, you know, the rougher and gnarlier it used to get, I knew that I was the best equipped. And so where everyone else is slightly nervous on takeoff, I was just yahooing because, holy shit, yeah, right, no matter how bad it is up there, I've got the best equipment, I've got me underneath it. So if I'm shitting myself, they are absolutely crapping it, you know, so here we go. <laughs> <laughs> Robbie, where did where did that confidence come from? I mean, is that is that a question you can even answer? I mean, because that's it's exceptional, and and there are, I think people can get to that level through a lot of training, or they're just incredibly competent people. Uh, you know, probably a combination of both. But was that something you just had? That's something you had in your back pocket, or is that something you developed? Uh, well, it's. It's something that's also been developed. It's something that I had. Uh, I believe it was also uh, one of the positive results about being a failure. You realize that the world is judged by other people's standards, but inside you know that you're a fully functioning uh, human being that has potential. You just haven't necessarily found it. But uh, obviously I, I, I found some of my potential with, with flying. But um, I don't like my life to be restricted by archaic ideas and method, method, methodology, methodology. Um, because other people have drawn those limits and those lines, and those other people I truly don't believe were as talented at drawing those lines and those limits as I am. Uh, I'll draw my own thanks, and I'll find out what what my potential is rather than someone else defining the limit of their potential and saying that's as far as you can go. So the confidence comes from the fact that um, it, it's a self-belief that, you know, every human being only has a body, two arms, two legs and a head. What's inside the head, of course, is also relevant to what happens. But uh, if another human can do something, then the chances are I can do it because they're only as equipped as I am, um, and that's within my my field. My my, my fields. Uh, I, I could probably be a brain surgeon if I had to, but I'd struggle to be that, and it would take a lot more work. Whereas in the things that I'm of, uh, in in the, the sports and things uh, that require um, the skills that I have, then uh, I, I just find it easy to to challenge myself and then that brings you confidence because when you challenge yourself and you prove yourself right, guess what? Carry on. Next time, do the same thing. Next time, do the same thing. Don't be limited by other people's fears and uh, lack of um, determination just because they couldn't do something. 
I want to get back into kind of the precision of some of the sports that, well, the precision that's required by some of the sports you undertake, like the Isle of Man and base jumping, that kind of thing. But before we do, the Brits, the Brits come from an island that doesn't have awesome flying and not a lot of mountains. And yet year after year after year, there have been people like you, um, Pendry and Goldsmith and Ogden. Why? What is it about the British program, the British mindset? The what is it? Uh, I mean, because well, you guys a, on a, on a world scale can often step in with the Swiss and the French, who have the juniors programs and the Alps, and you can get paid doing it. And you know, I obviously there's a lot of history here, we're, mm. we're, uh, but it, it is quite fascinating. Uh, it, it's something that, uh, you know, for sure, I was so proud at the time. I still am proud. Uh, we had such a good run in our day. We were fundamentally the, the team to be revered. And one of us would normally take home the individual title, and it was uh, normal for us to take the team title home, whether that was yeah, virtually all the hang gliding events we were just on top. But I believe that comes from a certain British tenacity that is a, a culture-based thing. Um, and, you know, you, you can see the history of our tenacity, uh, whether right or wrong, by our uh, crusading and land-grabbing around the world. And then when it comes into the uh, context of paragliding and hang gliding, let, let's face it. Good conditions are easy to fly in. It's just go out there and do it because there's thermals everywhere and there's mountains showing you, you know, literally telling you where to go. And uh, in England, the conditions are terrible and every flight is not, not terrible. Uh, they're very inconsistent. So every flight is a struggle. And if you get good at struggling, then when it's turned on for you, it's just kind of a walk in the park it's you know you're, you're struggling over low flat lands with a low cloud base and weak lift and then you get thrown into the alps where it's high cloud base massive mountains and strong lift this is like let's go you know this is a piece of cake <laughs> there's thermals everywhere look i'm just going to glide to that ridge boom another massive strong thermal i'm just going to glide to that ridge boom another massive strong thermal this yeah so um I, I truly believe, you know, there's there's nothing better than uh, than to to practice in difficult conditions because that's what makes it easy when the good stuff comes along. What do you credit your so many wins to? You, know, you had the you had the I believe the two hang gliding world championships, the two paragliding world championships. You're one of I believe. No, 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 no. It, it was only one hang gliding, one paragliding. A one on one. Okay. The, the, but you're one of, I believe, three uh, mm -hmm. that have done that, one and both. What, what's, what was your approach? What was your, how, how where do you credit that to? Uh, there was never an approach back in those days. Again, that was when I was in the flow and not trying to achieve anything other than my best. Uh, that's another thing I think is very important. Uh, when you turn your competition, against competitors who are guaranteed to lose. When you turn the competition 
to oneself who have your best potential. It might not be to win because people often have more potential than you, but you're going to get your best result by trying to beat you. That's that's where mm. the, the results were coming from, really. I was just trying to fly my best and be my best. I wasn't worried about who or what or where we positioned. It was just go out there every day and do my best. But um, in answer to the question, I was surrounded by great people. Uh, yeah, fantastic. You know, uh, John Penry was an amazing friend, mentor. Um, Pepe Lopez, the Americans. Uh, I, I was so lucky that uh, a lot of the good pilots saw my ability and one thing that often happens is the not so good pilots always have a knee-jerk reaction to immediately uh sort of try and vilify the young guy who's coming up as reckless and dangerous and yes so what i'm reckless and dangerous by your standards but by my own i was not even reckless or dangerous i was just doing what i needed to do and the good pilots they recognized that you know what they were dealing with and they just brought me in and enjoyed uh, uh, enjoyed my progress and success and um, you know this you can learn so much from these people because they're they're open and they, they want to offer and um, yeah so basically it was a rubbing off even from club level you know some great people took me under their wing and just you know, before I could drive, I had a guy by the name of Colin Ryder who would, with his wife, pick me up, stick my hang glider on their roof. Uh, I was stuck because, you know, my dad was working or something. They'd pick me up every weekend and take me up and look after me. It was just, and again, I think that was also because um, a lot of these people uh, just saw this pure passion and, uh, right, let's facilitate the next level. Tell me about the the kind of early years with Adele, just anything that kind of pops up that was kind of funny. You know, you, I know you started at Adele, I believe, in the in the paragliding. Well, actually, let's start there. What was it like to transition from hang gliding to paragliding? Um, <laughs> well, for me, it was amazing because uh, I was super gung-ho and uh, still in my element. It was a new, a new craft. But it, I was still in my element, and uh, so it was just learning to fly this new this new wing. Um, and uh, yes, it was slow and it was rubbish. But uh, like everything, I, I absolutely love to learn. You know, I, for me, everyone's trying to accelerate the learning process, and I want to do this and I want to do this. No, 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 slow it down because the learning process is the most satisfying and joint enjoyable part of anything once you become moderately okay at something the big buzz is gone and everyone's trying to get mm -hmm. to this next level whereas now just accept where you are because it's the best way to learn anyway is to draw yourself back be totally self-critical and enjoy the learning process because it, you know it, it, it's like a flower blossoming you don't want the flower to go from uh, a bud to a flower instantly you want that thing to to slowly grow in front of you and each petal to slowly unravel itself 
and that's like each step of the ladder or whatever. And that's the process to be enjoyed. And um, yes, I, I just got on the paraglider and enjoyed it tremendously. And it, it seemed obvious that that's what I should be, be doing next. And I'm a very next thing kind of person once I've got to the level of um, ability that satisfies me, nobody else, just me, um, then I'm looking for the next hit. <laughs> you, you know, sitting here talking to you that I, I would have expected maybe not more recklessness, but more, uh, I mean, the, the stories are that you were so aggressive with life experiences but also just you're you're clearly willing you had that mind frame of test pilot which is you know a lot of confidence and also you know just willing to blow it up over and over and over again um but i i, I just gather I, you know, I haven't talked to you very much but i just gather you're very calculated is that right uh no i i am more calculated now because um the filters of life have been slowly drawn across because uh, that's one of the things that happens when you get into business and you have to make a living and those associated responsibilities I was definitely um, uh, and and also immature you know I, I was young immature uh, I, I definitely was the the reckless crazy, pushing the limits, uh, instigator of all kinds of stupidity because, uh, and I'm not saying that uh, maturing is either a good thing or a bad thing, it's just something that naturally happens, you know, like a, like a good wine as it ages, um, hopefully becomes better. And, you know, the, the sharp edges that you could taste earlier, yeah, you know, you could deal with them, but um, uh, long-term probably not the best way to live your entire life. So I just feel that I'm maturing into a, you know, well, hopefully a continual path of it, maturing whereby I can still, and I am still totally reckless and lunatic uh, regularly, but um, I, it was reflected a lot more in my personality then, whereas now I just turn it on for when I need it rather than um, wind people up and generally be a limited all the time because the the 90s you know as i kind of understand it there was you know open class was the big thing and it wasn't just firebird and adele it was you know that was everybody showing up on prototypes everybody's racing open class uh you know as you say many of them are rubbish and sounds like you know the carnage was was pretty high and they they called you at some point you know, the father of the serial class. Was that about when you and Kavanaugh started Ozone? Give me the timing of that. And what was, it's kind of funny that the, the kind of the godfather risk in a sense <laughs> is also like the godfather, like, you know, Hey, we gotta, we gotta trim this back a little bit. Yes. Uh, well it came. Uh, yeah. Okay. So this is the uh, late nineties and we've got into a situation whereby the competition scene Yes, at the it, well, it was only open class then, and the wings were performing better, but they were getting, or they weren't particularly safe. 
And the ability that you needed to be able to fly one safely was literally the ability of a test pilot and what we could, and a factory pilot. So what we could see was the testing factory pilots basically had an unfair advantage over most of the field because these wings were a handful. And people were unfortunately hitting the ground far too regularly. Uh, I recognized that my advantage was my test piloting and you know the frequency with which I was flying and flying those hot wings. And I just didn't think it was fair. And uh, I also didn't really enjoy seeing people that I shared a camaraderie with being splattered on the ground because, you know, for what? You know, we're meant to be in this for fun and enjoyment. And I still was totally in it for fun and enjoyment. I still am. And, uh, yeah, so when you, when you see your friends being injured and, uh, in some cases dead, there becomes a certain futility to the whole thing. It's like, this is pointless. And, and what for? What are we, what are we measuring here? Um, it's, it's not something that is measured on parity with the rest of the field. I fly almost every day. You fly every weekend. Well, I should be better than you. So why are you spending all this money to come to a competition to then end up in an ambulance going to a hospital in Spain and being dealt with not particularly well? You know, it's just like this absolute madness. So I uh, tried to rally the, the troops to in, into the idea of basically certified paragliders for competitions that everyone could fly. For another reason as well, um, I truly believe in a, a level playing field. I don't like the equipment race. I don't think it brings out the best in anything or anybody, uh, including the manufacturers in, in, in a way, because um, it, it's, it, it turns the business into a fashion business. Well, not a fashion, but a, a, a rapidly successive improvement performance improvement business instead of making better pilots. And at the end of the day, we're trying to measure the pilot, really, I thought, rather than the wing. So the idea of zero plus was to level the playing field and let, let's see who the best pilot is because we still don't know who the best pilot is nowadays. There's one's on an ozone, one's on a gym, one's on a midia, whatever. And, you know, the requirements for certification are, are so open that it's not really certification. So it's still a performance race between the manufacturers. I prefer that race to be between the pilots. Mm. Yeah, it's not basketball, is it? I always, I've, I've always had a hard time with these sports that are either judged or that are, you know, I grew up ski racing and a lot of it was your wax guy, yeah. you know, on, I was, I was a speed guy, I was a downhiller. And yeah. I just, you know, why can't we all ski the same gear? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and this is the thing. I, I find it so interesting that, you know, the competition truly is the human element in there. But we are now removing the human element and putting the technical and the technological element in there as, you know, literally the prime factor. If you look at MotoGP or uh, Formula One, they're mapping the car or the bikes for every corner. So... You know, the, 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 the track map is put into the bike. And if you're coming around this corner, you can smash the throttle to full. The traction control knows it's corner number four and only delivers this much power going up to 100% as you come out. 
well, once upon what? Yeah, yeah, once upon a time. That's crap. That, that, well, it's the same as a GPS. It's doing the same thing. It's yeah. giving you, ah. it's giving you the imp, or it's taking away uh, that sensitivity on the throttle where you'd have to wind it on so carefully because you know you've got 200 horsepower at the back wheel. And if you wind it on too quick, boom, you're off. Whereas nowadays, uh, and that's why a lot of the crashing has stopped and you hardly see any high sides because as, as they hit the apex, they know that at this point, boom, flat out, the engine, only, the mapping only gives you a certain amount of power until you've got the bike upright and then you get it all back again. But I had no idea these yes. things were being driven so much by computers. Oh, God. That's crazy. Yes, yes. but like I say, Paragline is no different. Uh, look at everybody's flight decks now. They're enormous. I used to have one little <laughs> tiny Davron Vario that I often used to switch off as well because I like silence when I'm flying. I just go with feeling. And that was it. And now it's massive flight decks and you've got your spare battery pack and this, that, and the other, and blah, 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 blah. blah. And before you know it, oh, yeah, two, you know, it's like... <laughs> two, two loggers, two screens, two, yeah, yeah the whole thing. And, 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 and we're still actually trying to... Masquerading under all that, we're trying to find the best pilot. Mm. What, what are you doing exactly? You're now, you, you've now almost eradicated the pilot. You know, you could fly one by drone with, you know, uh, autonomously um, and probably win a competition nowadays. Oh, not win, but certainly place very well because you don't need the pilot in that. So, but yeah, but hey, that, that's only my personal beef. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, again, it, it comes it comes down to this epoch in time where we're we're masquerading the human element, and it's the human element that needs to be prominent because until the human element becomes more connected again, all this um, detraction from the human element is basically leading us further away from our natural path. And the further we go from our natural path, well, I can assure you, the harder life is going to get. Well said. It's interesting to hear you were talking about your own risk prof profile and, you know, getting older and learning as we all hope we do. And then, I mean, I didn't you just get pretty busted up in the aisle? So tell people about the Isle of Man race. And I may, maybe I have this wrong, but isn't it the most dangerous race in the world in terms of just numbers? Is that right? Um, I, I don't know if it's the most dangerous race in the world. Uh, I, I wouldn't like to categorize it like that. Um, what I can tell you is it's ultimately, it sends goosebumps, you know, when, whenever yeah. I think about this thing. Uh, for me personally, everybody's different. It was the ultimate challenge. I was a little bit older than most people take up that kind of thing. But I'd always loved motorcycles, as I told you earlier. And uh, eventually I got into motorcycles, and then I got into a bit of track day riding, and then I got into some racing, and then I did some street racing here in New Zealand, and I realized, oh, my God, I'd love it on the street, you know, on road racing, proper on the roads. Um, and the next level was to go to the Isle of Man, which is a 60-kilometer course, 37 miles, uh, around a small island off the coast of England. And, you know, there's brick walls, trees. It's just a regular road that's closed off. Um, 
and it's insanely fast and for sure very dangerous uh, there are a number of deaths each year um but that has to be expected and you know it, it's these there's not a person that doesn't line up there knowing full well the risks that they're taking and they are the risks that you're prepared to take because the uh, the enjoyment level stroke addiction is so compelling and uh, fulfilling that uh, yeah it's no problem that's what we're doing you know just uh, keep your eyes down head forward and yeah or eyes forward and head down and uh, try and try and keep it lit as much as you dare and uh, you know I was never very good trying to stretch your imagination but um, in, in my latter years, and we're talking, I started this at 45, which is, uh, I started racing out of my 45 and was definitely one of the oldest guys there by a long way. But um, it brought me back into the focus and the flow state that I'd been missing for a lot of years because uh, I'd been concentrating probably a little bit too much on work. So it was just a, a beautiful thing for me. And uh, ultimately, just I can't think of anything. It's very hard to describe how totally consuming this is because, well, for the first week, you're having practices in the evening and you're getting about two laps, maybe four laps if you're lucky, practicing for the first week. Then the race week starts. You've only got two races. Um, or I only have two races and each one is four laps. So you've got, uh, 37 miles to do four times. Takes about an hour and 20 minutes total. And it's an hour and 20 minutes of absolutely in the moment meditation, motorcycle riding. You know, you are, you're trying to nail everything as good as you can nail it. Um, as fast as you possibly can. There's no, there's no warm up on a race day. At 10 o'clock, the race starts. Everybody is let off 10 seconds apart. So it's a time trial. And basically, you're sat on the start line at zero miles an hour, having no warm up in the morning or nothing. And within a mile, you're doing 160 miles an hour down a hill with a big kink at the bottom of it. And you're absolutely pin flat out maybe maybe if you're good you're making 180 miles an hour down there and you hit the bottom of this thing the bike compresses and literally less than a mile ago you were sat on the start line cold now you are thrown 100 percent neck deep into this and that's only the beginning it just it gets it it almost gets crazier (laughs) And as you warm up and get into the flow of this thing, so you have to gather, you know, can you imagine what that start line is like? You have to gather yourself from getting up, having breakfast, having no warm up, no nothing. You know, I've done a few exercises and things to, to get my body warmed up. You're sat there at zero miles an hour. The next minute you're doing 160, 180, trying to hit, trying to pin this machine and wring its freaking neck, you know, and, all your lines that you've learned, uh, you know, that everything is so 100% committed. And I loved, and it, I, I found it so empowering that there was something in this world that dangerous 
that's also totally within your control because it's up to you how fast and it's you have to again it's one of those moments where if you misjudge your ability you're going to be dead and i love that it's where you have to be brutally honest with yourself i would love to go as fast as the fast guys but i can tell you right now i don't have those skills no problem right so what have you got rob let's go out there and do your best but and you're never turning it down to 99%. You are giving it 100%. But 100% of what I got isn't quite as 100% of what these good guys have got. So you still give it your absolute best, but you know to not try harder. Because if you try harder, it's not going to end up with a whole big mess. So, yes, that was... I mean, it's the... No, I was just going to say it's the, it's, it's Jeff Shapiro talks about, you know, it's the, it's the teeter totter where, you know, in family, it's really wide. The fulcrum is, you know, and then it just keeps getting narrower. Like wingsuit base jumping, the fulcrum is, is a microscopic dot where, you know, if you're, if you're proximity flying, you can't screw up a little bit Mm. that, that that's dead. You know, that, that line is just so tiny and it sounds like, yeah. But you see, even, Maybe it's even tinier in the well, Isle of Man race. This, this is why I can sort of, uh, uh, and I, I'm not trying to big it up because I don't need to big it up. It, it, this, is what it, no. this is what it meant to me. And it, nobody else even has to really be able to understand it. It's just what it meant to me. But um, if you think of proximity flying, for one or two seconds, you might be close to the ground. And when I say close to the ground, you might be a meter, a meter and a half off. Well. At the Isle of Man, you're a meter off the ground because that's maybe how high the seat is or less than a meter, 800 centimeters off the ground. And you're doing phenomenal speeds. Way faster than terminal. Yes. You're doing phenomenal speeds for an hour and 20. And proximity proximity flying lasts for what? Two seconds? This is, (laughs) this is, this is what I'm talking about. So you have an hour and 20 of not messing up and um, wow if there's anything how do you how do you up, mentally how do you mentally train for that uh, that i mean you, it's, it's quite it doesn't work to go on a racetrack to do that i mean how can you just go out and, and drive you know and, and and race at 180 miles an hour on a windy road and train for that for an hour and 20 minutes that's insane focus yeah. i guess it's just flow it's not even focus right yeah yeah uh, well it, it, it's focus and flow all together. Um, how do you train for that? Well, I, I did do a lot of circuit racing, obviously, to train for that. But also, I was riding the roads around here, uh, like the lunatic that I can be from time to time. And so uh, there's a lot of very good roads here in New Zealand. Very small population. There's only sort of about five and a half million, uh, which means that um, uh, the roads are not particularly busy although they are a little bit dangerous. They're not the best kept roads in the world, but that's good too because the Isle of Man is very, very bumpy indeed uh, and undulating mm. and very rugged uh, on the bike. So I, I would just go out here and uh, terrorize the local farmers, I guess, and be very reckless and throw caution to the wind and ride like an absolute idiot. Well, can you describe what, 
it's like you said, you know, you, you imagine showing up at the starting line, you have, you know, you've had some breakfast. Can you describe what that's like, you know, mentally to fly your stuff over the aisle, man, and go through this? I imagine it's pretty wild. There must be some pretty heavy emotion. Well, um, remarkably for me, I, I don't know why it's, uh, another skill I've managed to pick up on the way. Uh, I can just drop everything apart from what I need to be doing and I normally understand that um, being nervous or being on the back foot is the worst place to be. You know, you've got to be on the front foot and ready to go. So I was always very calm on the start line and never... It, it was just literally... You have to also understand that there's not many people that can qualify for it, can afford it, and all these things. I just saw every time that I rolled up there to just be a privilege. I'm about to race mm. a motorcycle around. Put it this way. That I, I don't know of any unleashed fun like that anywhere else in the world that exists. And if, there, if I did, I would be doing it. But there isn't. For me, that was the ultimate, uh, and it, it's it's brought me a certain amount of um, clarity and calm now because I was always searching for the ultimate buzz, the ultimate buzz. Come on, Rob, next thing, uh, uh, you need more, you need more. You know, like the, the the consummate addict that I am to adrenaline. It, uh, it, it was just such a privilege to be racing there because, man, it, who else is getting this intensity? Nobody. You know, the, the, the percentage of population who have done this or who are going to do it or who do it is so microscopic. And I'm privileged enough in my life to now manifest myself on this start line with a beautiful machine under me. Uh, the only thing that's uh, between me and the finish line is myself. You know, it was uh, each time was amazing. And in actual fact, Finishing the races was super emotional, you know, because I fucking made it, you know, <laughs> I did it. That was... <laughs> survive. Yes, that was... Uh, well, it's not even survive. It, it, yeah, I think you know you're going to survive, but the accomplishment was just incredible, incredible. Something very difficult to describe. Is it, was it, is it hard for you to end these like when it's over, is there a, you know, you're, you're in that flow state, yeah. you're driving 160, 180 miles an hour. Life doesn't get any better than that. Uh, when you're done, do, is there a dip? Is there a, fuck, I got to go home. I got to go back to work. Is it, how do you deal with that side of it? Um, I'm just very lucky. I know a lot of people do have sort of withdrawal symptoms as such. And for sure, uh, then, the nostalgic side of me does have withdrawal symptoms because I would love to keep doing it. But uh, the first thing is it costs a fortune. You know, you're just pissing money to the ring. It, it's not particularly environmentally friendly, although most of my life isn't it anyway. Um, you know, I, I, I basically produce large items for landfill and in between some humans get some enjoyment out of them. But still, it's not exactly very wholesome. Um so yes, I would. I, I could leave the, leave those places very easily, actually, and just pack up and be on to the next thing. Because also, I'm the guy that 
is living in the now. That's finished. Now what am I doing? Oh, now we're backing up. Now we're going home. Now I'm flying back to New Zealand. Now I'm getting on with work. So it was just, uh, yeah, it was all relatively easy. But uh, if there was one thing I would like to have been able to continue doing, it would be more Isle of Man. Because, but again, I understand that that's just an addiction. And uh, it, there's there's a point where you, you have to be more powerful in your addiction. And it, that, that time has come. I'm, I'm going to bring up something that we may not we'll have to see how this goes. I, I don't know if this belongs in the, in the show, but it, our, our mutual friend Kiwi, um, you know, you, you and I both went through that in some ways together. We didn't see mm. each other there. You came just after I left and then we missed on the, you know, after we, they found him. Um, but a lot of people reached out to me, you know, with very serious, real condolences. And, you know, I, I, I you know, I hope, people have sympathy of course right mm. and i i miss kiwi of course and i loved that dude and but of of all the people i have known he certainly seemed to have the best relationship with death of anybody i have met and it seemed to me like that guy lived so many lives as you have and I never felt this like, oh, poor Kiwi. I always felt like, man, what an awesome way to go. Mm. And, um, and I, so my question is, what is your relationship with death? I mean, it seems like you must be pretty comfortable with it. Uh, yes. Um, yeah. Once upon a time, you know, in my younger years when, really understand everything or everything i didn't understand much i still don't understand much but it's a little bit more than i did um yeah i had a very much more altruistic view and i was obviously trying to save the paragliding competition for fraternity from themselves and from you know market forces and wanted everyone to to be alive and, to, and kicking and such um and, you know, I, yeah, not necessarily easy things to talk about, but I lost a couple of my good friends when I was uh, younger. And uh, that affects the way you relate to death. And for a long time, I didn't want death to happen, uh, especially to friends, but... Now I just, yeah, it's part of life and it's just something you got to get on with. And I, I have absolutely no fear of death because, uh, again, because of Kiwi and uh, our, how would you describe this? Our mutual enjoyment of uh, the psychedelic realm, then uh, I believe I visited the place that, could be a passing point into uh, towards uh, so-called um, bodily death. I'm not going to imagine, or I, I don't have to imagine uh, each to their own. But um, uh, spiritually, I think there is, uh, or 
our connectivity continues. And um, so I, I, the fear of losing my physical body, there isn't any. I just, I don't even care you know, what can happen today, tomorrow. I've lived such an incredible life. I've had so many unique, beautiful experiences that uh, I don't need to cling on to the physical uh, realm anymore. And again, through that uh, psychedelic venturing, uh, I can be comforted in the fact that, uh, you know, if, if nothing else, I will go on and be a part of the universal force that is all around us. So, yeah, there, there's nothing to fear. There's, there, in fact, I'm almost looking forward to it in, in a very positive way, not in a morbid kind of way, just in a very positive way. Yeah. And the reason I, I brought it up was that I I want that to be a comfort actually to to people that that miss Kiwi because yeah. I, you know I sat in a hot springs with him in the middle of Nevada six days before he disappeared, and we talked about this very thing. You know, we talked about other stuff too, but as, you know, he was a fascinating individual, and that's what I miss is talking to somebody who was so fascinating, so smart, and so world traveled and so amazing, but. He wasn't scared of death. I mean, he had, he he was he was ready, and and uh, and he in some ways, you know, he would say he'd seen it and it, it experienced it, and um, and not by a near death experience, but also through psychedelics. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, I mean, to me, it was he he brought us on this beautiful last adventure, and what a way to say goodbye. Mm. I, I don't know. I mean, you know, I'd rather do it that way than, than being hung up in a cancer ward or something. Oh. I, just, I just thought it was, I thought it was really, I thought it was really beautiful. Yes. And, yeah. um, it, yeah. it, it was fitting. Uh, well, yes. Uh, it, it turns out to be fitting for the man that he was, uh, obviously it, it's very, it's still difficult. Yeah, it's yeah, it's maybe a bit too difficult, but uh, the reality is, is it's only my ego that is mourning his loss or our loss. Um, That's very well said. That's very well said. It is. It's. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah, he, he was just someone very special to me. But hey, here we are. It, you know, it is totally all good, and I, I am totally good with it. And uh, I know that I'm just catching him up later. It's not a problem, but we still... Yeah, like you, I just miss having somebody with that potential to be able to see into things in a different way that my mind sees into things. And uh, I think that's why we harmonize so well because, you know, basically he was a genius. And uh, like I say, he was too big for this world. 
you know, his his thoughts were too big. And I I do also know, and I, I regardless of what anyone thinks, his books and his writings in the future will become a milestone in our understanding and perception of of the human potential, should we say, or uh, human existence, because uh, you know I I believe that he was one of the first Westerners to um, uh, study and self-experiment into DMT and the, uh, the effects of DMT to the level that he did and combine that with his intellect and there was something incredibly powerful happening there. Uh, I, I, I can't profess to understanding it all. I've been there with him on some of these journeys uh, into the DMT realm and obviously the other psychedelic mushrooms and um, uh, LSD, mescaline, pretty much all of them. And uh, I know what they bought him and I could see that this uh, transformation with his intellect and his perception of, of, of the human being as such was something not ready yet to be accepted by you know, uh, our very restricted spiritual society at the moment. So, um, but I'm, I'm sure in the future people will be hailing him as some kind of uh, revolutionary, I hope, because that's pretty much what he was. And inspiration. Yeah, and, it, and there's, there's, there's real movement in that realm recently that I think he's, he was such a big part of. And like, like you said, I, I don't know how to articulate this or tackle it whatsoever, but his energy, I mean, from the first time I met him, he had this energy that was so compelling and he made so much sense. Mm. He, 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 everything he, the way he looked at the world was bold and truthful and exciting. Mm. He's the most fascinating person I've ever met. And, yeah. um, and I didn't explore any of these sides like you're talking about. That's just, that's something I don't know hardly anything about other than, you know, college well yeah it's you know he sorry i didn't know much about him until i met greg and uh we got on like a house of fire from day one and um <laughs> uh, he was already you know a, an experienced uh psychedelic practitioner with you know um lsd and mushrooms and mescaline and such and uh yeah, he opened my mind to that side of things and uh, then DMT came along and he opened my mind there as well uh, and I just feel in a way so privileged that uh, my psychedelic guru as such you know, was the greatest of our time I don't know anybody else uh, and I've met lots of his friends and you know we, we, Went to Burning Man a number of years together and we lived together. We've got a house in the Dominican Republic together. We, you know, so, you know, I was this running mate lunatic for quite a number of years and I just 
you know, what a privilege. Yeah, no, yeah, exactly. What a privilege. His his book I, I got from him, he had just finished it and, you know, self-published under the influence, 20 Tales of Psychedelic Noir, which is just such an awesome title. And he he was so proud of this thing. And he uh, he gave it to me when we were down in Texas. We were trying to fly in some distance down there. And it is freaking brilliant. It's so fun. And it's uh and, and again, because I knew him from flying that, you know, that wasn't, I went out to see him one time and at Halloween and, you know, for me, it was a big night, but for him, it's probably, <laughs> and, you know, so I got to see a little bit of it, but that just wasn't, you know, I, I kind of like you, I, I'd heard a lot of stories, but I didn't know that side of him. And that book really gives a window. Into yeah. that. I got to encourage our listeners to get this thing. It's just so well, the funniest thing laugh out loud. It's fantastic. The funniest thing with that, Gavin, is when we used to live in the Dominican Republic together, uh, I'd go down there for the summers to develop snow kites, believe it or not. And uh, so we had this, we've got this crazy property down there called the tower and it's three stories, octagonal buildings, totally unique. I mean, it's, it's classic, Greg, or Kiwi, you know, just, it's not like anywhere else. Anyway, so uh, we had this place, and he'd be writing these stories, and he'd be passing them to me to read. So, uh, and I don't know how long I've been pushing him. Come on, Greg, get the book finished. Finish the, you know, finish the short stories. Finish yourself. And so I've read all these stories through numerous iterations as he was sort of perfecting them, such or yeah, putting the, the the final touches to them. And I'd be, come on, you've got to get this thing out there, man. These aren't going to be anything when you're dead. They need to come out when when you're here. And he'd always laugh at, yeah, you're never a famous author until you're dead anyway. (laughs) Finally, he gets the the book out, which was very satisfying for me. I know how much it meant to him. And, uh, you know, I I, I went back down to the Dominican after I'd uh, dealt with Greg's affairs in New Orleans. And uh, I was sat in the house up on the third story balcony. You're at canopy level, so there's palm trees and beautiful green fauna and flora around you. And I was reading through the stories again, and oh my god, I, you know, just emotional. I, I mean, and again, I bet I'm sure. And and again, you know, when you when you it helped me. Um, it helped me with his death because reading about stuff, it's like, Jesus, this guy yeah. <laughs> has lived so much. I mean, he's just the stuff he did because of course it's, you know, quote unquote fiction. And he and I had some great, <laughs> yeah. about that. you know, Walter and, you know, I was like, dude, you're in every story, you know, you're real easy to pick out. You're the big bloke. You're the big Kiwi who's constantly, you know, like maybe getting in a fight, but you don't know how to fight, but you're real big. You know I mean? I, yeah. I know who's you in every one of these stories, you know? And, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. Um, well, it, we should, we should get back to, to flying and the other stuff. It's, it's great to, to talk about him with you. Cause I know, I mean, you guys have a lot of history together, you know, living together and, and Driggs and some Valley or, I mean, you, you know, you guys have, have combed the world together and had, I'm sure had a lot of pretty incredible adventures. One of the adventures that, uh, has kind of reached legendary status is your your A four in with Othar and 
And those guys in Slovenia, I wonder if you could tell that one because Bill said that would be uh, his, his quote from you is give it more gas or something, you know, yeah. as you guys are going out. So what, what's this one? Oh, it was, uh, yes, it was a PWC in Slovenia. And uh, this was, Ozone had just started and basically I was broke because, you know, I, I would, I wasn't saving money during my career as a competition pilot because there wasn't many to save. Uh, I was just, I was just yeah. doing it. And then we started Ozone and um, uh, yeah, I'd thrown everything I had into that pot. But I think we had the first gliders out and so needed to go make a bit of a showing. And we went to this PwC in Slovenia. Othar had shown up. He'd landed in Italy, rented a, a car. It happened to be an Audi A4. And, uh, he was there, and um, Bernie, uh, I've got Bernie's second name, from Canada, was there, and, and a few others. Anyway, uh, it was back in the day when some people still sort of held me on to some kind of regard and put me on some kind of pedestal. And this one of the pilots, his father, just opened a new restaurant, and he wanted us to go and sort of christen the new restaurant. and. Each year, they're allowed to shoot a certain number of bears in the region, and he had shot one bear, and he wanted to prepare the bear for us that night. So, uh, and well, it was mainly, uh, admittedly, for me. Um, but I said, "Oh yes, but I'm with this crew because <laughs> you can't leave your, you can't leave your crew behind." So we took the whole crew, yeah. whole crew up to the restaurant, and going up there, it's this beautiful windy road with switchbacks, and I'm already wishing I was driving because, but it's Othar's car. So we're driving up there, and it's like, oh my god, this road deserves to be torn apart. It's, I used to love to to drive like a maniac. I really was a maniac. Anyway, so we're driving up there. We get to the uh, to the restaurant. It's a beautiful side of the mountain type ski lodge restaurant thing and the owner as soon as we walked in just took a shine to me in terms of right we are having a good time tonight and the Slovenians now had to have a good time so he was plying me with alcohol from the beginning you know just and I'm a lightweight so I I was (laughs) totally lit already then we had this absolutely incredible meal of there which I haven't eaten, I haven't had before or since, and it really was divine. The meat was incredible. Um, and we had this big night. Everyone's pretty lit by the end of it because the owner was, uh, you know, there was no bill to pay. The owner was just blindness. And Bernie was the only guy left who, who wasn't drunk, which was lucky. So Bernie jumps in the car to take us home at the end of it. And I think there's five of us in the car. So there's three in the back. Me and Bert. And I was in the back. Um, Otho and Bernie in the front. Anyway, we start driving down. Come on, Bernie. You're driving like a freaking pussy. Give it some gas. And then I start start coaching him through the gears. Down into second. You know, set it up wide. Floor it. Come on, more gas, more gas. And anyway, these are really steep switchbacks. It's on a very yeah. Side. I've driven those roads. Yeah. I know exactly it, what you're it, talking about. The, They're windy. Yes, but Slovenia, as well, is quite poor, so there were no crash barriers on any of these corners. Anyway, <laughs> well, it was in those days. Uh, this is probably 19, yeah. 1998 or ninety nine or something like that. Could have been two thousand. 
So we're going down this road, and I'm, come on, Bernie, faster, faster, more gas, more gas, nail it, nail it, come on, brakes, nail it, you know. Anyway, he's doing well until at one point on one of these tight switchbacks, he loses his bottle. And uh, instead of following the instructions, he kind of freezes, and we literally just sail off the edge of the road. And we're passing through the canopy, through the trees, like there's, there's leaves going past us, and I'm still so lit. I'm in the back going, more gas, more gas. <laughs> anyway, but the story gets more and more ridiculous. We, we fly through the trees. We manage not to hit any trees and end up crashing into this big rock. Car's sort of on its roof on the side. It's a bit of a shock. Is everyone okay? Everyone's okay. Oh, my God, everyone's okay. Oh, wicked. Okay. Right, let's get out. So we get out, climb back up to the road, and it was a proper climb back up to the road. You know, we we covered some serious distance. Anyway, uh, then we mobile phone someone, and they come and pick us up, and we're like, yeah, we'll deal with that in the morning. So we go back up the next day. You can't even see the car. It's so far gone. You know, it's, it's down, and that's like, oh, my God. Like, what are we going to do here? And our car goes, well, uh, I rented this thing in Italy and they said, you can't drive it in Slovenia because it won't, it won't be insured. Oh no. Okay. I've got this great idea. Let's take the license plates off, take the stereo out and, you know, make a few things and let's pretend it was stolen. Let's pretend it was stolen. Well, <laughs> this is, this is, <laughs> this is what silly minds do, you know, immature silly minds like mine. And so then we made the police reports and did all that shit. And Nota went back and said, yes, it was stolen, but not in, not in Slovenia. And of course, it's an Audi A4 in Italy. It could have been stolen because those things, those kind of things happened. Yeah. Anyway, of course, what you forget is that the seasons change. And so it was all covered in foliage and God knows what, because it was down in the ravine and there was trees in the way. But in the middle of winter, it probably stood out like a, a sore thumb. So about a year later, Othar gets this call from some uh, Italian investigation bureau saying, yes, we have reason to believe some kind of fraud going on here. Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. So you, you basically have two choices. One is to stand up against the fraud charge, or the other one is to pay the bill for the car. So uh, the bill for the car was paid. Yes. But I, I have to thank. How much was that? It was. That's not a cheap car. It was 15k actually at the time. It was obviously rental rates, so it was actually a yeah. cheap car. But I have to thank Elko at that yeah. particular juncture in time because I, I was broke. You know, I didn't have any money, so uh, I think Elko and <laughs> and you were kind of the instigator, <laughs> as I often was. I'm sorry, but I have I have spent <laughs> loads of my money on on everybody else. You know, I, I was never. I was the guy buying the ski boat for us to have fun. I was the guy, you know, right. just get in, let's go. Because, uh, you know, I, I was being paid more than they were earning. So, uh, you know, I, I, I never went shy on petrol and food and all that kind of shit. So <laughs> it all it all evens up in the end. But, oh, my goodness, total stupidity, total craziness. But everybody okay. You know, that was the main thing. <laughs> yeah, great, great. Robbie, if you could rewind the clock all the way back to the beginning, would you change anything? And if so, what would it be? 
Uh, uh, yes, uh, I, I wouldn't change much. It would only be um, my personality in those situations. I would have liked to. Well, I wouldn't. Uh, I, I could have done it with more decorum. That, that's all. Can you can you put some more on that? What What do you mean? Uh, you could have just been more of a gentleman, or what do you mean? Yes, more decorum. I, I could have been more of a gentleman. I was young, aggressive, impetuous. Uh, you know, the fact that I was totally loaded with energy wasn't the problem the, the problem was the delivery sometimes and i, I definitely mm. ruffled some feathers and caused some shit uh, nothing that i regret to the point that it stays with me but when you ask me to rewind it, then yes i could have mm. i could have been more of a gentleman i could have been slightly more accommodating to other things i was very um uh, me and us orientated it was me and my crew it didn't involve anybody else so i could have been slightly more open now what's the craziest thing you ever saw either you or something you saw in in flying something that you think back is i isn't there a story about you going backwards at like 90k an hour or something and jumping out or i, I don't know if that was you but there's there's got to be some in your past now I, actually this is a this is a good story for people as well to, to listen to and maybe remember because it's it's not a particularly uh, nice story but it, it's very poignant in terms of uh, your own longevity and we were at we've gone to a competition in Telluride um, it was the usual crew plus some new people that we didn't know and we went up to launch on the first day and it was pretty windy and uh, there was a guy pulling wingovers on launch and they were they weren't particularly good wingovers. And, you know, Telluride launch is a high launch, I seem to recall. It's a, is it a 9,000? Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's over nine. It's over nine. God, my memory could actually work for something. Uh, <laughs> and those aren't really the kind of altitudes that you want to be messing around with wingovers and stuff close to the ground, you know, especially in the type of conditions that Telluride delivers. And, uh, it's actually terrible, but uh, I turned around to our crew and I'm like, this dude's going to be freaking dead if he carries on doing that. Boom. He hit the ground and was dead. Holy fuck. It was just, oh my God, literally. And it, it, first off, he didn't really have the skill. Secondly, he was in the totally the worst place for doing it. And I thought, you know, Unfortunately, now I look back at that and I just recognize how important it is to to always be present, recognize your own level, recognize where you are, have some respect. It's like, my God, there, there is the quintessential example of when you don't have those three things. And uh, yes, mm. that's actually stayed with me ever since because it's... There it is, you know. It, it, it's all there. You just got to play it, play it by the book instead of, um, you know, wanting to show off or, or needing that feeling so bad that you're prepared to risk everything for it. You know, you just, you've always got to recognize the balance. I'm sorry if that wasn't quite what you're after. 
<laughs> no, no, no. That's that's great. That's a great lesson. How has flying those years that you flew a lot? I mean, you're still kiting. The, the I'm still flying too. Yes. Yeah. Had, as are you okay? Oh, yeah. Are you how how has flying when you kind of look back? Uh, how has it changed your life? Oh my goodness. Uh, it, well, um, yes, uh, without a shadow of a doubt, it was the ultimate gift. You know, it's, uh, has it changed my life? It has been my life. You know, it's, uh, meeting exceptional people, traveling all over the world, um, experiences, views, views that other people will never see. Well, that can never understand. Robbie, well, well, well said. And I feel like you and I could probably sit here all day. It's amazing how fast the time has gone. What a treasure, man, and, and a pleasure. And um, again, I'm I'm sorry we couldn't couldn't find Kiwi, but it was. Uh, this has been a real joy, and it's it's nice to have these because. You know, like, like with Kiwi recording this summer, it was, I was so glad I had that just as a little, you know, something. So it's, it's great to, it's, it's great to share this time with you. And thanks for sharing a little bit of your life uh, with all of us. Uh, thank you very much, Gavin, for having me. It's awesome. And uh, I hope that, uh, you know, if, if, if it um, inspires people or it, uh, it makes people think, you know, I'm an idiot and do it a different way. I don't care. So long as there's some form of inspiration that can come from it, then that's fantastic. And thanks for having the time to, uh, to talk to me. Thanks, Robbie. Well, good luck with everything there with Ozone and building kites and racing bikes and, and having fun. And uh, one of these days, I hope our paths will cross. I'm sure they will. I really hope they do. In fact, uh, I'm going to make a point of it happening. Awesome. If you find the cloud-based mayhem valuable, you can support it in a lot of different ways. You can give us a rating on iTunes or Stitcher or however you get your podcast. That goes a long ways and helps spread the word. You can blog about it on your own website or share it on social media. You can talk about it on the way up to launch with your pilot friends. I know a lot of interesting conversations have happened that way. And of course, you can support us financially. This show does take a lot of time, a lot of editing, a lot of storage and music and all kinds of behind the scenes costs. So if you can support us financially, all we've ever asked for is a buck a show. And you can do that through a one-time donation through PayPal, or you can set up a subscription service that charges you for each show that comes out. We put a new show out every two weeks. So for example, if you did a buck a show and every two weeks, it'd be about $25 a year. So way cheaper than a magazine subscription. And it makes all of this possible. Uh, I do not want to fund this show with advertising or sponsors. We get asked about that uh, pretty frequently, but I, for a whole bunch of different reasons, which I've said many times on the show, I don't want to do that. I don't like having that stuff at the front of the show. And I also want you to know that these are authentic conversations with real people and these are just our opinions, but our opinions are not being skewed by sponsors or advertising dollars. I think that's a pretty toxic business model. So I hope you dig that. Um, 
you can support us. If you go to cloudbasedmayhem.com, you can find the places to support. You can do it through patreon.com forward slash cloudbasedmayhem. If you want a recurring subscription, you can also do that directly through the website. Uh, We've tried to make it really easy, and that will give you access to all the bonus material, a little video cast that we do and extra little uh, nuggets that we find in conversations that don't make it into the main show, but we feel like you should hear. We don't put any of that behind a paywall. If you can't afford to support us then just let me know and i'll set you up with an account of course that'll be lifetime and hopefully and you're being in a position someday to be able to support us but you'll find all that on the website uh, all of you who have supported us or even joined our newsletter or bought cloud-based mayhem merchandise t-shirts or hats or anything you should be all set up you should have an account and you should be able to access all that bonus material now thank you so much for listening i really appreciate your support and we'll see you on the next show thank you <laughs>